Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Polybytes podcast, bringing you bite-sized politics every week. Presented by Voice for Victoria. Just over a week ago, Victorians went into the weekend in the final hours of Friday afternoon with the Premier going on leave and calling a pandemic on his way out the door. This is the first time we saw them use the powers in the new pandemic bill, which controversially passed the Upper House of Victorian Parliament the other week, after repeated attempts and a marathon debate, thanks to the help of a few key crossbenchers. As Victorians waited for the final days of the state of emergency to tick down and discover how the government would use these new powers, over the weekend we saw the factional wars heat up during a big pre-selection weekend for both major parties. For political newbies, pre-selection is the process where it is decided who will be picked to run at the next election. It's also referred to as candidate selection. For current sitting MPs, what this means is they find out if they'll be allowed to attempt to keep their job at the next election or be given notice that they'll need to find new employment. As many people know, the Labor National Executive, so the Federal Branch of Labor, took over the management of the Victorian Labor pre-selection process due to the branch stacking scandal that has seen a number of Labor MPs dragged before IBAC for questioning. The irony, of course, being that the first IBAC witness was actually a Federal Labor MP, who admitted to stacking his little heart out for decades. But let's leave that for now. The pre-selection process for Victorian Labor was described in the media as a bloodbath, where any MPs who had been factionally aligned with Adam Somurek and all mentioned in IBAC were targeted for removal by the National Executive. Some of these current MPs have quite publicly promised retribution should they fail to win their pre-selection, such as Marlene K. Roos, and we now wait to see if they cause some chaos for the party by doing things like suddenly quitting to trigger a by-election. One MP who got a lot of attention for getting targeted was Frank Maguire, someone who oddly enough wasn't factionally aligned and is quite a popular Labor MP, but that the state exec decided to remove anyway. In many surprising moves, Frank called his own presses to speak to the media about getting targeted for removal and even stood outside the building where the pre-selection decisions were made, asking to be saved in his seat, but none of that was enough. The Liberal Party had their own pre-selection meetings, although these candidates were actually voted for in the normal process by the local branch members, with both Michael O'Brien and James Newbury surviving their challenges. The spicy one for the Libs was the battle in queue for the seat that will be vacated by Tim Smith, following his drink-driving accident and subsequent car crash press conferences. The battle was between long-serving Liberal MP David Davis and a new young female face, Jess Wilson, who's an ex-staffer of Josh Frydenberg. Despite Davis being a long-running favourite in the party, Wilson won easily, sending a message that some of the Liberal members seemed to be looking for younger and more diverse talent to enter the party. However, Davis was rumoured to be backed by Tim Smith, who it's now come out has put his local home on the property market and the rumours are rife that he may consider quitting in protest prior to the election and triggering a by-election. So we might be in for a very busy election year in Victoria. As we headed into the week, Everyone was waiting to find out what the government was going to do with these new pandemic bill powers. So we were waiting and waiting. The usual back door between the government and the Herald Sun seemed to find itself closed and citizens were waiting until there was only 12 hours left on the clock for the state of emergency to find out what rules they would wake up to the next day. There really is no justifiable reason for such sloppy and incompetent governance that saw mass confusion caused, yet again, 
when the, all the public had to go off for information was a press release when the rules came into effect the next day. To add to this issue, the press took the government's comments that they didn't have much time at that presser a little too seriously and asked next to nothing during an announcement that on the same day New South Wales was dropping almost all restrictions, according to a well-publicised and communicated plan, Victoria dropped almost nothing, with no indication when that would change. So all we really got from the presser was Sutton basking in the limelight and visibly frothing at being able to keep restrictions just in case because Omicron. The word booster was used so many times that if it had been a drinking game, you'd have ended up with alcohol poisoning. And we had the special treat of them trotting out another cherry-picked health worker to push the booster line, who it turns out was neither an emergency physician or an infectious disease expert, but a physio. After getting next to no useful information from the presser, the public were forced to wait for them to table more documents to get any information. As many know, part of these new pandemic powers, the government has a number of document requirements they must table. On Friday afternoon, we saw the first of these in a report from the Premier on the declaration of a pandemic. This report meets the requirements under Section 165 AG and must be tabled within three days of the declaration of the pandemic. The document itself is one of the most useless and contradictory pieces of garbage they have published to date, which was punctuated by the ongoing theme that vaccination is not enough. For the most part, the Premier's report was quite literally just quoting the CHO report that was attached to the back. A few gems in this included a table that showed risk by age group, with the percentage of cases who died under 18 at 0%, compared to 90 plus being 22.7%. But in the same document, they claimed that there have been poor health outcomes reported across all age groups, and this is the kicker. It isn't possible to predict with confidence who will have a mild illness or a more severe one with serious illness recorded among people across all age groups. They then use that table, which has the 0% and the 22.7%, as a reference to back up that statement. Another fun one was in the CHO report in point 44, where they referenced the previous claim that up to 36,000 excess deaths in Victoria could have been expected during the first lockdown. This model was one of the original ones floated in early 2020 and has not only been proven outrageously wrong, they themselves stopped quoting it and in the previous state of emergency reports publicly tabled, they themselves estimated 10,000 deaths by equating the death percentage to those in the UK. Oddly, there is no mention of either of these more updated pieces of information in the report. This is only the first of the documents they are required to table. We are still waiting on the pandemic order reports, which have seven days to be publicly tabled under Section 165 AP, as well as the gazetting of these orders, which also still hasn't happened. The pandemic order reports should be where the human rights assessments are located, and it remains to be seen if the health minister decided if he wanted to have regard to other matters, such as social and economic impacts, which he is in no way obligated to consider as part of these powers. These will no doubt be tabled this week in order to meet the seven-day deadline. Disappointingly, the only comment made by opposition leader Matthew Guy was in relation to the announcements about the government backtracking on their promise to make masks no longer mandatory in retail, but nothing about the impact for tens of thousands of people still unable to work indefinitely or the stress on business owners trying to have their staff enforce government policy. 
Speaking of stress on business owners, we saw the first few detected cases of Omicron cause the government to once again shit the bed spectacularly, making up policy on the go whereby all of the fully vaxxed patrons of two nightclubs were forced into a level of isolation specifically normally reserved for close contacts, which was equally farcical when it was for seven days from exposure and at the time they only had two days left. They then dropped the policy immediately afterwards due to the uncertainty it caused in attending businesses. During all of this, there was also a COVID exposure for Dan attending a birthday party that same weekend, but it's since come out that he's tested negative. I'm sure the party could have used some of his Teflon on the days that followed as the budget blowouts on the Westgate Tunnel came out publicly as hitting the billions, with the project also years behind track. The comment has to be made that after successfully getting elected on the promise of ripping up the East-West Link contract because it, and I quote, wasn't worth the paper it was written on, which then turned out to cost the taxpayers over a billion dollars to get out of with nothing in return. It's pretty safe to say Dan and co aren't good at understanding either contracts or what roads cost. Crossbench MP Clifford Hayes had an excellent rant on Twitter about how ridiculous it is they continue to pour more funding into roads than hospitals, even at this point in time where they sought extra legislative powers to deal with the health crisis. Health is now not the only crisis Labor have to deal with, but another of their own making in shunned MP Adam Somurek, who has become quite a highlight of Twitter, clearly deciding he's either going to attempt to redeem himself and or just burn the house down on the way out. In the last week, we have seen Adam confirm that he will be referring the red shirt scandal to IBAC for investigation, put out a series of embellished and incredible claims relating to Dan's fanatical obsession with social media and his massive reach, which has now become quite an online joke. And to top it off, he's also threatened to reveal the identity of online trolls who may have defamed him. In other news, the team behind the Not Above the Law campaign relating to the WorkSafe investigation and the role of the government in hundreds of deaths due to hotel quarantine failures have confirmed that they're looking to take the Premier and WorkSafe to court themselves to get answers on why no individuals were prosecuted, with the case expected to be filed with the courts within weeks. Speaking of court cases, still ongoing is the Slugate case, which was scheduled to be heard in court early next year but the team are now facing issues of attempted delays to the case being heard and have been left in limbo as to when this will finally happen. So updates are to come. This unfortunately is quite a theme, with the same thing happening to the Victorian case against the worker vaccine mandates. Originally denied an injunction to prevent staff being fired on the promise of a speedy trial, we've seen the date move to mid-March 2022, with Justice Richards also refusing to recuse herself from the case twice after being requested to do so. The team have also been asked to reduce their plaintiffs and their evidence, but have refused to do so, with the case still currently on track for March. In Australia-wide news, our country finally dropped the racist brain fart that was the African flight ban relating to a variant that had been detected in just about every other country. Another similarly idiotic move that has been backflipped was by the Queensland government, who initially tried to throw multiple plane loads of people into isolation for Christmas, due to a single positive case being detected on board, but since changed that decision to have it only impact the few rows of people ahead and behind the case itself. How exactly this science balances out in a giant metal tube of recycled air is unclear, but like most restrictions, they never feel a need to actually address this. 
New South Wales continues to remain strong in their commitment to open up the state and remove the vaccine mandate for 99% of situations, causing multiple journalists, particularly from the ABC, to have complete mental breakdowns online, not understanding what recommended for mask means, and seeming offended at the idea of people taking personal responsibility for their health, which is the new message being pushed by the New South Wales government. The only message being pushed by the federal government is that Aussies want practical yet limited government. He seems to have the limited part covered pretty well by continually doing f*** all to sort out that Australia continues to be a land of country states, doing whatever they want to citizens with absolutely no consistency between rules and continually unstable border situations. For those of us in Victoria, we continue to live in uncertainty of what rules may change when and why, heading into a new year with no guarantee of what our lives will look like month to month. At some point, you can only hope somebody finally asks what the long-term goal is. Again, needless to say, it will probably move. For now, thank you for joining me for the first episode of Polybytes, which has been produced by the amazing team at First Move Digital. See you next week.